This podcast is produced on the land of the Wujak Noongar people, and we want to pay our respect to the elders past, present and emerging. So, Courtney, we're back re-recording our intro because I had the wrong cable um, earmarked for your microphone. Yeah, look, people don't want to listen to me anyway on a Wednesday afternoon. It's fine. (laughs) No, no, now that we've got all the tech working, we can introduce our guest for today. So we have Taryn Harvey on um, the the podcast episode uh, for your ears today. And um, she has quite an extensive career history that you know a little bit more about. So I'll let you introduce her. Yeah. So Taryn kind of talks us through her journey to where she is today, which is the CEO of the West Australian Association of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she's got a long kind of career in advocacy uh, for with people with disability and mental illness um, and did a bit of work in the government as a public servant previously. Um, but yeah, she'll talk about that in more detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really great to have Taryn on um, I've known Taryn for a few years now and yeah, she's a really great, uh, speaker, communicator, mm-hmm. very compassionate and really interested in, in kind of social justice and, um, addressing inequality and unfairness. And, uh, you'll hear that in our chat today. Yeah, absolutely. All those things come through. Yeah. Now you, yeah. you may hear the term Climia get used throughout the conversation, mm-hmm. um, which is an acronym for a bit of legislation called the Criminal Law Mentally Impaired Accused Act, mm-hmm. um, which Taryn does a really great job of explaining in more detail. So if you hear that term and you don't know what it is or you've never heard it before, that's what it is. Yeah. Cool. So don't be put off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So we'll just uh, we'll let the conversation flow on from there. So we hope you enjoy. <laughs> Great pleasure to welcome Taryn Harvey. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Craig. Yeah. Um, so some people will know who you are that listen to the podcast, but a few won't. Do you want to give us a bit, bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah. So my name's Taryn Harvey. I'm the CEO at the WA Association for Mental Health. Uh, we're the peak body for community mental health. So we bring together non-government organisations delivering mental health services in the community and people who identify as having a lived experience of mental health issues. Um, I've worked in I've worked in and led advocacy organisations for 13 years now in disability and mental health. Um, and I do so because for me, fairness is probably one of my top personal values. Um, and you know I think our our systems are really structured in ways that, just inherently unfair to many people. So for me, advocacy is that's why for me, advocacy has been such a vocation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've got a daughter, 18 year old daughter, who's studying youth work at TAFE, which I'm very proud of, yeah. uh, and has moved out of home. And I recently moved to Frio. So I'm entering a new stage of life, which is awesome and I'm loving. Um, cool. But yeah, that's uh, a bit about me. So uh, your life in, or your career in advocacy, was that preceded by something else? Did you study something else? And I was then a public up? servant. Okay. Um, so I started my career uh, as a graduate in the um, Australian Public Service. So I w- um, entered what was then called Family Community Services and Indigenous Affairs. I think housing was in there too, um, in Canberra in 2000 as part of their graduate recruitment program. 
Um, I was an art student. I did my arts degree at Murdoch. I was one of the, um, some of your listeners might be aware of the PPS program, Politics, Philosophy, Sociology program that Ian Barnes ran um, out of Murdoch at the Institute of Sustainability and Technology Policy. Um, it was only one of, it only ran for a few years, but there's quite a number of alumni, I think. So it was a real interdisciplinary degree out of the ISTP um, where Peter Newman was at the time mm-hmm. as well. Um and yeah, so I got my start in the APS and then um, came back to Perth from Canberra in 2003. Um, and then there was a machinery of government change, which meant my job moved from, I was working on disability employment reforms and our job got transferred in a MOG change to um, employment and workplace relations and uh, the rule was if you wanted to do policy work you had to be in Canberra if you wanted to if I wanted to stay in Perth I had to do contract management and neither of those options appealed mm-hmm. so I uh, did the unthinkable and left the public service yeah. to my mother's <laughs> panic yeah. and um, yeah I got a gig then at, at NDS which is the peak national disability services which is the peak body for um the disability sector with with one of my favourite leaders who was then my boss, Monique Williamson from um, MIFWA. Um, and, yeah, that really started my career in peak bodies and advocacy. I had a brief stint at the Disability Services Commission, um, but I really prefer the, I think, the freedom and the creativity and the, um, yeah, the freedom that, more freedom that you have working in the NGO sector. I found government really quite constraining. I found the culture quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that there was a lot of rhetoric about the kind of skills they want in the in the public service, which I don't necessarily see reflected in how they recruit okay. um, and how they encourage people to engage internally or externally, actually. Yeah. And so would you say that you can make just as big a contribution to the policy ideas and whatnot from the NGO sector as opposed to the public service or do you think there's a bit of a difference? I think I think you can do it either. I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. I know lots of people who've gone into the public service from outside saying they want to make a difference internally. I've yet to meet anyone who actually felt like they were able to make as big a difference as they wanted to. Mm-hmm. That said, I do know people that have done lots of work, lots of good stuff, but again, they've found it very constraining. Um, So, yeah, and and I think in my experience it really depends on how good a relationship government will let you build with them as to how much influence that you can have. Mm -hmm. Um, So that those some of those, you know, leadership relationships that you have um, really make a difference. You know, if no one's actually listening and no one's willing to listen, it's a bit like the voice debate, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can have a voice, but um, whether you're inside or outside, but... If the environment isn't conducive, um, you know, I often say government says, oh, don't stop bringing us problems, bring us solutions. I hear that a lot as an advocate. <laughs> it's my experience that people are bringing you solutions, but they're not the solutions you like the sound of. So yeah. you're just so accusing people of bringing you problems. Yeah. Um, so And that, that people continue to say they want the same solutions becomes a problem as well. Right. So, yeah, I think that's what makes a difference rather than where you are. It's the people that are around mm. you and... Um, who's in decision-making roles and how open they are about the constraints that they face as well. I think it's much easier to build trusting relationships to have those conversations and provide advice if there's honesty and integrity and authenticity about the constraints that people in government face. And I don't... Mm. I think they're a bit... 
they find it a bit harder to open up about those things than I think they should be. Mm. Mm. And um, you said earlier that uh, like fairness is one of your your passions and your areas. Mm. Did that was that something that you had always known? You always knew you were passionate about that area, or was it something that kind of grew over your your career to something that became a focus? Um, I always knew that. Um, fairness was, you know, ever since I was a little kid, knew that fairness was my overriding, one of my overriding values. Um, but it became more clear to me once I entered advocacy. Mm. Um, and I really hate that saying life's not fair, like, you know, yes, but life's, I can't, what's that saying that people use? It's like, yeah, yeah but we don't have to, de- we don't have to, to make it more unfair than it needs to be. And mm. maybe we could actually do something about it being unfair. Rather than just um, saying that life's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think what I enjoy about the things that I've worked on in disability is it's those tricky issues. So I think there's lots of people that are very comfortable talking about easy fairness issues that are comfortable to talk about. But I think, you know, in mental health and disability where people's experience of life is often so, well, they're not different because we're all humans and we all have the same needs and emotions and all those other things. But the the we find it much harder to have some of those conversations because of otherness, perceptions of otherness um, Mm. that I think, you know, I I really like dealing with these issues where fairness is a much more complex issue than some of the some of the other things that I think people are much more comfortable talking about Mm. what's fair and what's not. Mm. And what we should expect for certain people's lives. Um, And I think I continue to be driven by the lack of fairness that exists and is embedded into many of our systems for certain kinds of people, which I I feel often a lot of decision makers are really reluctant to face because it fundamentally requires us to do things in an inherently different way. Yeah. And change power relationships. That's the Mm. other language that I guess I've learnt as an advocate, which I think people, even, you know, who people who would say that social justice and power issues are what drives them in in what they do, um, I think we don't really talk properly about power um, and, you know, the people that I most want to speak on behalf or, sorry, the people that I most want to support and advocate for and bring their experiences to light are probably those with the least, genuinely have the least power. I think everyone is kind of talking about who's the most vulnerable. You know, you often hear mm-hmm. they're the most vulnerable group in society. Mm. Um but I think people, you know, for me that vulnerability is usually around lack of power um, and some of the things we'll mm. talk about today, you know, where people's power, loss of power is actually almost absolute. Um, so that's the that's become for me the real focus. Mm-hmm. So it's giving a bit of a voice to people who wouldn't otherwise have one or wouldn't have the means to have one. Yeah, and who, for whom there's a lot of stigma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for often one of the strategies that gets used in advocacy when you're, you've gotten as far as you can with some of that internal relationship advocacy is to use storytelling. I mean, even within that process, using storytelling or to garner public attention or support by drawing media attention to people's experience. A lot of people's experiences are so stigmatised that it's actually really difficult to get them to tell their story. So it's often necessary for other people to try and bring attention to those things because it's it's even more difficult for those people to come forward. Yeah. So it's interesting. So justice and the justice system pervades a lot of this 
um, as it does politics as well. And ha- having done a law degree, one of the things we got taught early on is that th- that justice is not about fairness, it's about certainty. Mm. And so the system's <laughs> set up so that we get certain outcomes all the time rather than fair outcomes. And it was like we were shocked in the first year when mm. we got told that by one of our lecturers. Mm. And I think that actually translates into some of the things you're talking about. Mm. The systems are set up almost in a utilitarian way mm. to for predictable outcomes for the greatest number of people and yeah a lot of people kind of fall through the cracks yeah and that's like that um just that the the cost that we have to um mm. what's that you know the unintended not the unintended consequences but um yeah, like collateral, collateral you know damage. Yeah, yeah. yeah someone has mm. to pay the price along the way yeah um yeah, I think that I, I, you must send me that quote because I think that issue of certainty, um, you know, particularly the focus, which I do understand around um, and how we define community safety is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. So with people that are highly stigmatised and I remember in some of the advocacy that I did on the mental impaired stuff, which we'll talk about later, I remember parliamentarians saying to me, and ones who I think should have known better, um, well, these people have a decision-making disability. They've demonstrated they can make bad decisions. Why wouldn't we? Imp- like, why wouldn't we keep them detained as a safe, like as a mm-hmm. preventative detention? Like, you know, because uh, <laughs> it's not right. Yeah. <laughs> and if we helped, gave them what they need, they uh, would not you know, this this concept of risk and a perception of safety mm. and who gets to determine that and how they determine that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I, I like that. But I think that perfectly demonstrates some of the things that I see. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's inequities throughout society that we try and address mm. through evening the playing field or whatever. And we're socially qu- quite comfortable with providing a little bit extra to people who need it. You mm. know, like when people are in their later years, they use way more health resources, for example. And as a society, we're comfortable with that because we're mm. all going to be there at some mm. point. We're all going to grow old. And- it's it's mm. This is a, a weird connection and I'm sorry in advance, but it's, it's similar to uh, having like a... Uh, funding for uh, fluffy and cute animals compared to lizards or snails or, or things mm-hmm. like that. I'm not and I'm not trying to make any form of comparison here, but like I love animals, so I love all of them. Um, but people are more likely to fund things that they find uh, attractive or nice or friendly or cute or, or mm. things like that rather than things that are stigmatizing or um, things that fall through the cracks. So mm. it's yeah it's very similar that way, I feel. Mm. Yeah. Well I think there's also if I think about some of the rhetoric in response to the events at Bankshire Hill, I think some people are just flat out in denial or choosing to cultivate a denial about the reality of how trauma impacts people and that, you know, that blaming individuals. Mm. I think the debate about Bankshire Hill essentially still blames those young people. Mm. Um, Do you want to quickly just describe that event for people who don't? So it's about the the ongoing issues they've been about, um, about, young people, um, I don't know if writing's the right, but, you know, acting out at Bankshire Hill, causing property damage, um, you know, escaping onto rooftops, all of those things. And in the background is the knowledge that we have about, you know, backgrounds of trauma that are largely untreated, um, a, a service model that's not been designed with trauma-informed practice in mind, um, young people that we know were... Um, 
you know, have been sitting in, for, in um, so, you know, uh, lockdown for considerable periods of time because of staffing issues, all of those things um, that, you know, it is totally unsurprising to anyone who understands um, how brains and behaviour work and we saw that with some of the leaders who spoke up um, like Fiona Stanley and, and others about what was happening and pushing back against the government's response. Everyone who understands this stuff knows exactly why that stuff happens. That's not to say it's not problematic, but to say that the way we're going about trying to fix it is daft and we know how to do these things better, but there was a refusal to actually acknowledge that that was a problem and to kind of there's nothing to see here. Now, thankfully, we've seen in the last day or so um, the news of Tim Marnie's appointment to implement the um, the new model of care that he's developed, um, which I think is really exciting. And I think Dennis Eggington and others have really come out and said, great, great move, great person. Tim's got a lot of um, trusting relationships amongst stakeholders as well. So I think that's really promising, but I think it's it also seemed quite surprising to me given the narrative that we'd heard before. Mm. But I, it almost sounded to me like a denial, like, you know, mm. listening to mm. the Premier at times and, and the Corrective Services Minister, who I personally have a lot of regard for, um, you know, the pub- public rhetoric almost seemed to be denying the reality of how trauma and, and um, you know, knowing how many of those young people have diagnoses of developmental disabilities, yeah. communication issues, you know, which we, mm. which we know are very high amongst um, amongst young people in justice systems, which and we know that communication disorders fundamentally impact behaviour. Um, yeah. I, it, just, it just baffles me. Um, it doesn't baffle me when, the commun- when members of the community kind of get on board that rhetoric, but mm. it baffles me that, you know, leaders will will speak out in ways that clearly defy what science tells us is the reality of how people work. Yeah, look, I, my, my research is heavily set in the justice system and yeah, I've had colleagues have their interpretation of their findings. This is sort of clinical and research colleagues, um, where they, in particular in the youth space, where they've basically found that the level of disability is so high that all around the world experts are saying these these kids can't be locked up because they're mm. never going to get any better. Mm. Like the, the environment is just not worth it. It's just not suitable for it. But you, they get pushed back on and they get told to water down their findings and, mm. you know, all this sort of stuff. And it's, it is kind of a, a political hot potato in a way. It just mm. keeps getting passed from one to the next. But that's a lack of leadership because we do, you know, life is not without risk. So a change in approach is never going to be without risk to go to your point of certainty. Mm. Um, and But we do know how to support people differently. But if you're not prepared to do things differently which when you keep denying these things is basically what you're saying. We're not prepared to do anything differently. We're actually quite happy locking people up. Yeah. That's basically what we're saying. Yeah. Um, And I remember, you know, someone I know who's a lawyer who has a child with a disability who um, was on the board of an organisation that I ran um, 
when we were talking one day about Klimi said, you know, the mentally impaired stuff was saying, you know, the issue with that is it basically says you are not of us and you will never be reconciled mm. to us. And I think that's the message that we're sending young people is you not right. you don't matter to us, you're not of us, you're not one of us, you're other and we're not gonna forgive you, we're not gonna create those pathways for your life to get better. Mm. Um, and so the cycle continues. Yeah. And it's and it is a cycle. Mm. Like it's cyclical, it's just it's a revolving door mm. and inherently well, yeah, it always ends up in adult incarceration and mm-hmm. disruption to communities and families because those children have children and mm. then those children have you know, the, the intergenerational trauma that's been passed down. And, mm. yeah, look, you can throw a towel over a couple of suburbs <laughs> in Perth and probably capture most of the people who end up in the justice system, mm. you know. It's just how it goes, mm. yeah. Yep. Um, but in the same breath, we get told by, when we suggest changes, get told by policymakers there's no evidence to support these changes. We don't know if they're going to work. It's, and it's like, well, so not true. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But it's like, well, you've actually got to try the change first yeah. to, to know if it's going to work or not. But based on what we know... The current system isn't working, so let's try something different. Mm. You know? But there is enough evidence of things people have tried about doing things mm-hmm. differently mm-hmm. and enough evidence about human behaviour to tell that story anyway. Yeah. Um, and if WA doesn't want to be a leader, well, you know, that's fine. Let's just throw our hands up and say that that's what, you know, <laughs> let's take responsibility for that mm-hmm. not wanting to be a leader. Um, but I think there have been times when WA has been a leader mm-hmm. on different issues and... I think, you know, I think there's a lot of people who who are really looking, you know, people out there in the community have the solutions and are going to keep pushing forward and trying to um, implement them. But, you know, yeah. I'm prepared to see that to say that, you know, this appointment of Tim Money is a demonstration of leadership and I think um, people will be really looking forward to seeing what happens out of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think, I, I think with, sometimes I think there's a lack of curiosity here too about, what we can learn from other places, mm-hmm. um, which goes to that point about denying evidence, like not wanting to actually be curious about what people are doing elsewhere that's working. That nullabore yeah. has got a lot to answer for. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, We're so different in the WA somehow. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, well, you're, you're from here originally, right? I'm not. Oh, you're not? Okay. I'm a re- well, I'm half Queenslander, half... West Australian. Okay. So I was born in Brisbane and um, grew up initially on the in the Western Darling Downs of Queensland. Okay. Um, and I, but I've been in WA for the most part since I was a teenager. Right. Okay. Yeah. And do so. and do you notice any sort of striking differences from the work you've done between WA and Queensland attitudes? <laughs> and oh no, I think they're far too similar. My mum will often say, "I have no idea where you come from, coming from <laughs> some of the family views I come from." But um, I think. I do know from colleagues who are much more familiar, I think sometimes the tone of the discourse I see in other states is different. Um, And I know from colleagues who have a lot, I think the justice space is always quite difficult, Um, but I think there are pockets of good work in lots of different places. I remember from my time in disability that, you know, there were some really innovative um, support things that are developed around justice and child protection issues, supporting people with intellectual disabilities that I just thought were amazing. A lot of that stuff's been lost now through the NDIS. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are really pockets of brilliant stuff all around the country. Um, And I get a lot of insight in that through my relationships with peak bodies um, in other states and territories. Um, And certainly, like in the mental health space, what I hear from people who work in other systems is that 
there's a far less, that the WA's mental health system, despite some of the efforts at leadership and change, that um, there is quite concerned, like the mental health clinicians here are much more conservative in many ways than um, other eastern states. Other states, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I collaborate with some New Zealanders and I've found the same thing. They're yep. quite pragmatic often. Yep. over in New Zealand. Yep. Mm. And I've got told yesterday really hard markers if you're ever getting assessed by them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Kiwis no. are really uh, <laughs> yeah, pedantic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's similar in um, the, the drug space with New Zealand. They're quite on top of it compared mm. to a lot of Australia. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I actually saw some resources today. We had um, someone from Speech Pathology Australia who have done a lot of work on communication intermediaries and their potential, um, sharing some some work with our team. But they highlighted some resources in New Zealand about um, communic- functional communication in the justice system. So, mm. um, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff all over the place. And, again, that's part of what I like about my role is being able to connect with what's happening in other places and draw some of those things, um, some of those examples to WA and explore what they, what they, you know, what their potential is here. Mm. Um, yeah. So if we talk about that for a second, you, that part of your role, what does that entail? Is it sort of communicating with government and saying, look, here's best practice from other places, you know, let's consider doing that here? Yeah, so putting forward, you know, through submissions and lots of other things, ideas. So one of the things, for example, we're doing at the moment is, um, so WAM has been facilitating a an, a an employment program called Individual Placement and Support across Headspace, in Headspace sites across the country. It's a, um, it's an evidence-based, fidelity-assured international model that's been around for de- some, some decades now. There's a whole academic community around it. Um, which and WAM provides the fidelity assurance and the technical support for organisations using it, um, and the actually the Productivity Commission recommended it be rolled out across um, Australian adult mental health services. Very effective, very efficient in the sense that you don't need to build a new service stream. You embed a vocational worker within existing support structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Headspace sites, we have a vocational worker works as part of the clinical team in the Headspace site. Um, we're promoting that idea um, with the support of the WA Justice Association. We want to test it in WA as part of the... Um, reintegration or um, diversion programs in the justice system. Mm -hmm. So it's been tested with a whole range of different cohorts. It's demonstrably more effective at employment outcomes than any government employment, current government um, programs like Workforce Australia or Disability Employment Services. So we really want to, we presented on at the reintegration puzzle conference um, and we really want to test that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also some stuff on um, supporting people with private rentals and people with mental health issues um, to get into private rentals um, that's been happening in Victoria that we've been sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, promoting those ideas as solutions through submissions and um, and other bits and pieces of work that are happening in WA. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we were both at the same event earlier in the year, or maybe it was late last year now, I can't remember, um, Community Legal Centre WA. Oh, yes, the Health Justice Partnership. Yeah, yeah, where they were embedding lawyers in these community yeah. services as well yep. to try and yep. help people so that people going to these services could then get legal advice and help if they needed it because yep. going it, to a legal service is hard. Yeah, It feels like it's just that connection of having a multidisciplinary team yep. again. So in, in health and in like hospitals and things, they, they have a multidisciplinary team because 
you know, one person's an expert in one thing. Mm. Um, so is that kind of what this uh, new worker in the group is doing, is just adding an additional voice within a certain area? Yeah, it basically brings expertise around employment yeah. um, into um, those clinical teams mm. and the, the housing model does the same. It embeds what's called a housing recovery worker into a clinical team um, and one of the valuable things of that is it actually raises clinicians' expectations of what's possible for people. Mm-hmm. So people with disabilities and people with mental health issues often carry the burden of people's low expectations. Um, so, you know, the, the the employment model is based on the concept that employment is an essential part of recovery. You don't have to wait till you're recovered mm-hmm. to get a job. Um, and so if we, you know, by, by showing clinicians, by it being part of what they do, what's possible, that raises their expectations. In housing, there's a lot of you, you know, a lot of people think that we should be looking at social and community housing for vulnerable people. The reality is there's not enough of that available. So the doorways model that Wellways run in Victoria was based on embedding a housing recovery worker within that clinical team and then that um, it's about helping people to access and retain um, private rentals which includes then connecting them with an IPS um, an employment service as well because obviously you need an income to sustain private housing mm. and again that's raised um, expectations of clinicians about what's possible for people but also it's helped to attract affordable housing to the program because it builds both programs are really effective at building trust in by real estate agents and employers mm-hmm. in because there's support available to them and once you've shown people success then they'll believe in that and they'll keep coming back to it so all of our evidence in the employment work too tells us that employers are better, are happier with the IPS approach because They've been burned so many times with some of the traditional employment service approaches. Yeah. Um, and real estate agents, they can see, they know that if they see signs of, you know, someone's mental health deteriorating, the property's no longer up to scratch as a result, they can reach back out to the initiative and get that support. Mm. And um, mm-hmm. and so the evidence from Victoria is that that's then caused real estate agents to encourage landlords to keep rents at an affordable rate, bringing those to the program. So, um mm. You know that's an amazing success. If you can build those kind of relationships and have those people coming back for more, then um, mm. that that's really invaluable because it creates that ongoing opportunity. So presumably, the for example, the vocational worker and the housing support worker, they've got some sort of mental health background, so they understand what's yes. going on, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that you're embedding one set of expertise into a broader set of expertise, just like we'd like to be seeing um, mental health workers embedded into non-mental health services. So for example, one of the things we've kind of been trying to fly the flag of an idea with communities is embedding mental health workers in some of their housing and support models Mm -hmm. because so many of the people that are accessing their services are have mental health issues um, and and so many of those services has have, have basically become frontline mental health services mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people can't get other supports. Yeah. Um, embedding mental health expertise in other kinds of areas, tenancy support would be uh, be one example. Mm-hmm. So we know that tenancy um, support organisations are seeing so many people in such states of distress that mm-hmm. it'd be great to be able to see people with 
you know, some other kinds of expertise embedded to support those teams, to support those people in distress. So this could be like foundation housing and these sorts of agencies? Um, Some of the tenancies support advocacy organisations like Circle Green and Mm. some of those other kinds of ones, the um, community legal organisations or other financial counselling would be another one where you're seeing lots of people in distress. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have the skills to manage that and then that also causes, you know, distress and stress for the workforce as well. Yeah. Yeah. And has there been any serious discussion about embedding people with a mental health background in prisons? <laughs> well, let's see if that's possible in this uh, new Bankshire Hill model. Like, yeah. imagine if we had peer workers working with young people in the justice system. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I feel like that just makes sense. Mm. Mm. The peer workers are often yeah. banned from working in prisons because they might have a, a history of been incarcerated themselves. But, and wait, but that would wait. be the point. So what yeah. what does that mean? So you can't have people so, yeah. who've been in prison back in prison as visitors? Is that the... I think they can go back in as visitors, but they're often... Because they do background checks, because I, I had to do one to go in as a, as a researcher, and a lot of the time they just rubber stamp no because someone's oh. got a history of incarceration. Is that because yeah. they're worried they're, like, bringing things in? Or, like, I guess that's friends their, or, or... That's, that must be something about their thought process. Or... Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. There are people yeah, with, with that background yeah, in there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, but if you'd think... Yeah. But if you just have a blanket approach to risk, yeah. this is the is- issue <sighs> mm-hmm. again around certainty, yeah. is we really need to have more nuanced ways of approaching risk. That's right. Because we're missing out on all of these benefits. And that's just life. Yeah. I mean, that's m- one of my issues with sort of hardcore criminology research is this reliance on validated tools to screen people for risk and then give them a yes or a no and it's like mm. there's actually way more going on than, than the questions you're asking you can't asking just them. have yeah. binary answers <laughs> to a complex problem yeah Yeah, anyway, we've touched on the justice system, so we may as well keep going. Um, so, yeah, so I believe from our conversation prior to starting recording here today that the Criminal Law Mental Impairment Accused Act has been modified recently or altered by legislation? Yes, so they repealed the 1996 Act. They've dropped the accused bit out of it and then they, they uh, have now fulfilled the 2016 election Commitment, which mm-hmm. was actually the first election commitment that Mark McGowan made mm. before the 2017 election. Okay. Wait, is was that made normal? at the mental health conference in 2016? Is that like a normal time frame? No, usually it's the term. Yeah, the okay. Well, okay. Yeah, that's well, what the original, like the, original in, the original commitment was to do it within the first year, which was mm. never a realistic time frame. Yeah. Um, yeah. So okay. that has okay. now been. Um, yeah, that has now passed both houses. So the they've repealed the old act and introduced a new piece of legislation, um, which is something that's brought a huge amount of relief. Um, but also, there's a bit a, sen- a sense of um, few of us have been saying it kind of feels a bit like a hollow victory because it has been so long and people have moved on. And um, I may get teary when I talk about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I was just actually on the phone to Ida Courtois before I came in today, who was one of the people that, um, who was um, Marlon Noble's biggest supporter and Marlon Noble's case was really the thing that um, that brought 
the the reform to fruition. Um, it's one of the few public stories that have been told about this legislation, um, and it was the story that really got um, Colleen Egan, who's now the chief of staff for the Attorney General, um, who was then uh, one of the editors at the West. She told Marlon's story, um, and obviously her relationship with the AG got got him on side. Um, and so we really are relieved because the longer you wait for things like this. The, the higher the risk is that they don't end up landing because mm-hmm. um, all you are is one tragic circumstance away from it changing the whole dynamic. Um, and thankfully for us, the, the, the numbers are not usually one to celebrate such a significant imbalance in any kind of parliament, but on this issue it meant that... Um, it meant that we were able to safely get the legislation um, through. Okay. Um, so that, yeah, that's been um, just a massive relief. But yeah, just it's been yeah. so long in the making, um, and that uh, we're all still trying to kind of catch our breath about it. <laughs> yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, just to uh, give re- uh, listeners a bit of context, mm-hmm. do you, and, and I think Marlon Noble's story is a really good example. Yeah. Do you want to just talk us through what the issues were with the old yep. act and his that led to yep. his situation? Yep. So the Criminal Law, Mental and Pet Accused Act was introduced in 1996 and it was legislation which prescribed how people who are found unfit to stand trial, so due to their intellectual or cognitive disability or a mental health issue, aren't able to participate in trial. They can't advise um, counsel and, and participate in the trial, as well as the treatment of people. And I'm less, fam- I'm actually more familiar with the disability element than the mental health element, so I might get some of the language wrong. But people who are found not guilty due to unsoundness of mind or who were found guilty but because of... Um, unsoundness of mind mm-hmm. um, that, that you know it was a tri- the offending was attributed to that so um, and one of the biggest issues the issues for those two different experiences some of them are quite different but fundamentally what that act allowed was for people with disabilities and mental health issues subject to the legislation to have indefinite periods of custody um, if you're unfit to stand trial you were subject to custody without any trial um, because you can't participate in one and without even a testing of the evidence against you. Um, and I don't have the figures to hand on exactly how many people have been affected by it over the years. I've personally represented, um, supported uh, two people for significant periods of time, one being Marlon. So after – and it affects people not only – in terms of their imprisonment, but after they were after their release from prison, there's also long-standing um, community orders. Um, so when I met Marlon and uh, Ida through Patrick McGee, who um, has done a lot of work on these issues uh, nationally, um, he was out of prison, but he was still on a community order, and the conditions of which were pretty um, were very strict, and were also um, again, you know, encountered a lot of um, very blunt assessments in terms of risk. Um, and also the thing about Marlon's case is actually the people who were the alleged victims of his offending actually clarified at a later date that, and this was what kind of then led to him, come, part of what led to him coming out of prison was that they actually said, well, the offences didn't actually 
occur. Mm. Um, and so they actually hadn't understood that that was why Marlon was in prison because of the those particular accusations. Um, Marlon's case was very unusual because, one, he had a very ardent supporter in, in Ida who's just a legend um, and who had a long-standing relationship with his family and who they trust had a lot of trust in her um, and some great she had some great allies in the not the justice system so much those there's some good ones there too um, and you know and getting um, uh, Colleen telling his story was um, and the thing for Marlon too was because the accusations were always contest were contested and had been clarified um, whereas a lot of people under the Act have actually committed offences and some mm-hmm. of those offences um, you know some of the most high profile ones we hear of are people who um, during psychosis may have taken someone's life mm-hmm. um, and so that's why those stories are hard to tell because not only are you dealing with an accusation um, of an offence, which you quite probably have committed, you've also got dis- the disability stigma, and you've also got, and or you've also got the mental health stigma, or you might even have both. Mm. Um, and I'm increasingly hearing people talk about co-occurring mental health and intellectual disabilities, um, and it's just an inherently unlike, you know, that what what. what it's just an inherently unfair piece of legislation and what struck me about... Another person I worked with under the Act, uh, you know, an Aboriginal man whose mother um, has has passed away but thankfully she was able to see him released from prison. He'd been in, in prison since he was um, 14 mm-hmm. and his mum just couldn't get her head around it, that there was no way out of this. Um, and some of the... Views I've encountered in working, um, contacting people in the justice system about that particular case, it was very clear that people had views about that person from different points in time that they were all carrying on an ongoing basis into and revisiting it every time a decision about him was made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these guys never get a chance to, they never get a second chance yeah. because people's prejudices of them have kind of been built up and people become hardened about those experiences. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have these, you know, risk this blunt risk assessment approach, um, and just the the it was just heartbreaking to try and explain to a mum who just can't understand how it is that there is no lever to be able to pull to change that person's mm-hmm. situation. Um, and we've we we embedded unfairness into that legislation and. Thank goodness for the Attorney General because I, I think without his leadership and his, you know, commitment to reform and being such a reformist AG, I'm not sure that we would have it would have actually happened. Um, yeah. And I know that you know th- this issue has been a, a victim of timing as well. Like I know before, um, you know, it's my understanding that before um, Labor lost government in 2008, that. Um, that there were, you know, that we could have changed things earlier, but for um, but for timing of elections being called and things as well. Yeah. So it's been a bit bit of a victim of timing. Um, but so, yeah. So, so what has the legislation changed to now? So there's lots of changes in it. The fundamental thing is it's introduced limited terms, and those limited terms are relative to um, to 
the term that someone would likely to have received if they'd gone through a trial. Um, the decision-making has been some... A lot of the decision-making was actually um, political decision-making, so um, people couldn't be released unless the AG signed off on it, mm-hmm. um, which had been very problematic um, under the previous government. Um, we've seen a lot of movement since this government in terms of people finally getting um, a chance to move on. So a lot of those decisions, um, including about where people will serve their custody, so in prison versus the Disability Justice Centre, for example. So those decisions will be made by, um, I think they're calling them a tribunal. So Mm -hmm. at the moment there's a a review board that's an extension of the parole board. It has some of those parole board members plus some others. So they're changing that. So limited terms, um, decision-making by the courts, um, some better stuff around processes um, within the justice system and um, options for people to be able to support, to be supported to participate in those processes um, and the opportunity for requesting appeals and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, they're some of the big things. But the biggest thing for us was the limited the limited terms um, because, you know, people were, were just ending up. and Because it, it takes away any sense of hope. Like, that's the thing I've seen, and we see that with refugees as well. When people have experience indefinite custody, it just robs them of hope and agency. Um, and, you know, you're already talking about, for people with intellectual disability, a group of people who find that, that who can find that quite difficult too. Mm. Um, and again, that's where Marlon was quite a different person, yeah. you know, very very affable, very positive, very kind of jovial person, um, really good at building relationships as well. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people, like, you know, it's part of the part of the experience of intellectual disability is to some is to find those things a bit more yeah, um, hard, that um, adaptability. Mm. So Marlon's case, I believe, was he detained for 10 years in yes, total? Yes, yep. And, and if he had been convicted, it would have been a couple of years maybe I can't remember now what it would have, what it would have yeah, been. Yeah, but nothing yeah. like ten years. No. Yeah. And the thing is that we we um, because of the risks of someone being found unfit, I suspect that there's a lot of people who've um, potentially you know pled to cases because um, the risks of identifying fitness are just too great. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know too anecdotally that um, well, what I hear from people who've worked in disability justice for a long time is that the Act was sometimes used for people who might have a long history of offending in a community. So a lot of people from um, remote WA and Aboriginal communities have been affected by the legislation. And these stories are kind of lost because there's no one to bring those... Like, Mm. often those people aren't even... They're not on any advocate's radar. They just... Once they're in the system, unless they meet someone in the system, and I'm thinking of particular people I know who've worked... um, in disability justice, in disability roles in the justice system, yep. who go out of their way to to connect people with others, mm-hmm. like a lot of these guys just wouldn't have anyone to be there to agitate. So they just have to kind of go along with the with the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for a lot of you know, the, in, for people in remote communities, you might have someone who's got a history of nuisance offending. You kind of, you know, they don't have support, and then eventually someone goes, "We need to get so and so some help." And that the you know the act at times has been used as a way of trying to get people help. Yeah. Um, but then in the end, has actually, and I, my understanding is that in the early days of the act, and I'm not sure what was in place before, but that. Um, in the early stages of the Act, people used the Act because they thought it was going to get people help and mm-hmm. then it 
became clear that they were just getting in, stuck in prison. There isn't any help. No. <laughs> we've, we, we've had a guest on who was who was incarcerated in New South Wales who had a, a mental health issue yeah. and he was told there isn't any yeah. help here. We, yeah. We're just here to prevent people killing themselves, basically. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's kind of what he was told. So I'm interested to know about the process because this is, uh, by my calculation, about 27 years in the making mm. since the original <laughs> eight was passed. So what was uh, Wham's role and your role in ha- uh, assisting to get this through? So I'm quite a newcomer to this issue. Um, and so there's been... So There's been people working, like clinicians and other people working in the system trying to work internally, I think. Um, WAM's role uh, in it had really been to coordinate a bit of a coalition of other NGOs and other peak bodies and advocacy organisations, including Aboriginal legal services, um, to agree a set of priorities for reform. Um, So I was working at Developmental Disability at the time um, and Alison Zamon in her first um, term in the council was probably the only real parliamentary advocate on this issue in both of her terms. Um, And she then, um, in in the years between her two terms, was the president of the Association for Mental Health where I work now. Mm -hmm. So we started, that's how she and I met, was was talking about this issue because she'd been supporting Ida and Marlon as well. Um, And so it was really about keeping the pressure on, keeping raising it, keeping advocating to the Barnett government um, who were really, you know, it was was very hard to get any... There wasn't an appetite for change mm-hmm. um, by that government. What we did see, though, um, with, was, with Helen Morton's leadership was the establishment of the Disability Justice Centre at Bennett Brook. So that was um, the first declared place. So under the legislation, there was provision for what's called declared places, which are alternative places of custody to prisons. Mm-hmm. We actually hadn't bothered to set one up. Right. So people with intellectual disability, people with mental health issues can go to prison or go to hospital. Yeah. Um, but uh, for people with disabilities, there was no other option than. Um, and there's really not enough room in hospitals or prisons. No, for, Franklin Centre's yeah. bursting at the seams and, mm-hmm. and other forensic. I don't think there are any other forensic units, are there? Uh, no. No. Yeah. So hopefully uh, there's a whole lot of stuff going around the, around the whole what they're doing with Greylands and um, so we, um, I think, you know, mm. we, we hope that we'll see some change and some increased capacity out of that. Um, but the declared place, I mean, it has capacity to have 10 people. I think the most it's ever had is three. Mm. Right. Um, again, because ministers haven't wanted to... Staff it or resource it. Well, they haven't or... wanted to let people in it. Right. Okay. Um, so too risky, apparently. Too risky. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was so that that was probably the biggest development we were able to achieve. We managed to get a review of the act under the previous government, but it all moved very very slowly, and then um, the timing was right um, in 2016 to get that to get that commitment, um, which again had been a result of just that constant pressure. So the, you know, the thing I've learned in advocacy is it all takes a really long time and you just need to be that constant drip, mm-hmm. that tap so dripping on the issue. So how do you do that? What are, what are some of the tactics to be that constant? Well, you keep writing submissions about it. You keep yeah. 
you know, writing letters to government about it. You keep raising it in your meetings with them, um, even when they can't stand you talking about it any longer. Yeah. And um, you keep asking them where it's at, you know, mm-hmm. asking for updates. Um, that would have been a lot of awkward meetings for, for a long time, wouldn't it? Just to be that constant voice. So what's happening with this now? And everyone's yeah. like, uh. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, we've told you we're going to get it sorted, so don't worry about it um yeah, yeah it's hard it's, yeah. it's really hard it's hard yeah. to be you know i think all advocates you know some of this the some of the challenges with advocacy you know individual advocacy and systemic advocacy can sometimes be different but particularly with systemic advocacy like no one loves having to be that nag all the mm-hmm. time but mm-hmm. like you're left with not much option you mm-hmm. know if um if there's not a lot of communication and then there's not a willingness like we're not going to go away on these things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I guess everyone understands that that's kind of part of the process, but it is, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. And I guess that's um, why there was so much relief when it did eventually yeah. pass. But the sad thing about that too is that it is re- it is absolute re- relief and yeah. we're so glad that it's done and we really, you know, celebrate the government doing that. Mm-hmm. But the problem with not people keeping people engaged with that work, which is basically what happened, like no one's been... No non-government people have been able to stay connected to the work for the last two years. That means we all lose momentum. People move on. And so these things, that's where I'm going to get teary, like Mm. this should be a moment to celebrate. But Mm. it's, it's, it's when it's been so long but between those opportunities for engagement to try and rally and to, and there's so much other stuff that we're, we're trying to do, um, you know, it's been on me to reach out to all, this, to all mm. the non-government stakeholders and let them know what's been happening. Whereas something like that, it really could have been a really collaborative effort mm. to do together and celebrate so, together. Because yeah. I want to be, you know, we want to be able to celebrate the government doing this yeah. um, sure, because surely. it is so huge. Surely it should come from the government. Well, and surely the government should be proud that they've got yeah. that through, it's come under their watch um, as well, and they should be wanting they, to celebrate yeah. it and yeah. highlight it as an achievement. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was going to ask you that about the personal toll that, mm. That advocacy around this and other things takes because mm. uh, I know from having been in um, adversarial type meetings myself to do with research and justice and whatever that I sometimes take a few days to get over it. Mm. You know, it'll play on my mind the things that were said and, and some of the contradictions that get mm. raised and whatever. Mm. So how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? Um, how I cope with it is really having allies Um I, I had this person that I worked with. Um, so Alison and I had worked closely on it and worked closely with Ida and Patrick McGee um, and Margaret Doherty at Mental Health Matters too, who, who as an organisation are one of the few orgs, of, you know, of, for people with lived experience who've had these experiences these experiences um, and Chelsea McKinney who is now at Community Legal WA who worked at WAM and um, so having people like that that you can debrief with and kind of process that stuff with yeah. but it's it's it is hard because you know governments aren't are often uncomfortable with advocacy and you know, sometimes the relationships, you know, I won't necessarily say there is an inherent tension. I know some of my advocacy colleagues object to that terminology, but it's a power differential. And so holding that stuff and and holding that discomfort around the awkwardness, it is really hard. Um, and it's kind of, I think people get frustrated with being... Um, 
treated like you're being a pain in the ass or that you're that you're a problem rather mm. than actually well we're trying to offer solutions but mm. you need a there needs to be that relationship there and it can be hard to establish those relationships um but for me, it always comes back, and one of the things I loved about working at DDWA, which, which, um, I still get some opportunity for at WAM, but not probably not quite as much. Is that engage is that engagement back with people, mm-hmm. um, because that's that reminder about why you do what you do, um, yeah, is you know that it's it's actually about the people and so that is always very rejuvenating as well Mm. um yeah it's a hard slog and the last couple of years have probably been some of the hardest of my career Mm -hmm. um but you know then when you have those wins it is very it is it is still a positive thing it's still um so we will be organizing a party Mm um i've I've, i'm hopeless at organizing events but i have made a commitment to many people that i'm going to do that so (laughs) um i have to do that um but yeah it's the relationships i think that keep you going and having stuff of your own i've and it's taken me a long time to get here and part of this change in my life i think is making it easier to do that but actually i'm a good um I'm good at telling other people about how important self-care is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, not so good at it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I find going to live music events and screaming songs out helps. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it's because I've done a lot of my advocacy work while also being a sole parent and I, um, and you know, being an advocate and a CEO and a parent, it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Um, and sometimes... I've like the last few months since my daughter's finished school and moved out of home, there've been moments when I've just kind of looked back on it and going, I'm not quite sure how I've survived all of this. Um, But I actually just really love the work. I really love the diversity of advocacy and peak body work. Um, I like the stakeholder work. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say, particularly at DDWA, that what I loved about the diversity was, you know, in any week I could be sitting around a family's kitchen table through to speaking to a min- in a minister's office through to presenting at, you know, a Senate inquiry or whatever else. So yeah. um, I really like that. And I um, – but I just love some of the relationships I've been able to mm-hmm. to build, those trusting relationships that you build with people who kind of get what you do. Um, yeah. 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 Well, I can say, having been in the same room as you a few times, that you're good at it. Well, thank you, Craig. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And yourself and Margaret from Mental Health Matters too, who we've had on previously. Yeah. Just, yeah, without people like you guys out there. Yeah. I, I don't think a lot of these wins would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Nagging works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a there's an art to nagging in a way that's effective, right? Yeah. Like you get better yeah. at it. Yeah. Look, and I, I think it's different. Different. You need different strategies at different times, and you need a. Um, I'm, I have another expression I use, and I can't think of it now. But you need a kind of good cop, bad cop. You know, you need the, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and another peak body who doesn't do a lot of public advocacy, but they do a lot of relationships based, you know, behind the scenes sort of stuff. We tend to do both, mm-hmm. but sometimes. If the sometimes the internal stuff just doesn't get you anywhere, and so sometimes you then have to escalate things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a, a an advocate uh, 
Maxine Drake, um, who's done a lot of advocacy in mental health, I remember her saying to me once that advocacy is um, the, the the art of knowing when mm-hmm. to use what tactic. And I, I don't think I, I haven't always got it right, um, but I also think it's very easy to be too hard on yourself when you get it wrong. I've mm-hmm. The most fear I felt as an advocate has probably been um, in the Klimi stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, on individual cases, because there's that terror that if I say the wrong, if I say the wrong thing, or what might happen to this person? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's real consequences. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 Okay. So we're probably not too far from the end. It's been a really great chat. I was, I was just wondering if, if there was anything on your radar now that you wanted to mention before we finished, now that you've got Clemere out the way. Um, <laughs> well, I think, I actually think there's probably more work to do on that. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll be looking at the budget to see what's there in terms of implementation, because my concern is that if we don't have the support available for people that, because um, the Act requires judges to consider community safety first and foremost. Um, and so I just want to make sure that um, people aren't left at risk of staying in prison beyond those terms if the support's not available, because mm-hmm. it's my understanding that that's potentially what might happen. Okay. Um, and I'd like to see the best opportunity for people to be found fit, because under UN obligations, we actually should be giving people the best opportunity. So I'd love to see communication intermediaries and other things used for um, under the Act for helping people to be found fit. Um, but I think the, the for mental health, there's this bigger challenge of really trying to shift the discourse about mental health away from the biomedical approach to a more social approach um, that can, that's complementary. So mm-hmm. WAM has been very focused and will continue to be focused on trying to reform our system by reconceptualising it. Um, that's a very hard that's a very hard battle though. I thought disability was political. It's got nothing on mental health. Um, and so that, you know, who has the strongest voice and what what power and authority are lived people with lived experience really given when it actually comes down to fundamental decisions about what our system looks like mm-hmm. um and so that i think will be an ongoing um an ongoing issue for us to be trying to influence mm-hmm. um and i'd like to go back maybe in a different way but we ran our first community campaign um in 20 in the lead up to the state election um because we wanted to fundamentally change um we wanted to change some of the spending priorities towards more community-facing stuff. Um, and what we've seen is that when we take those kinds of approaches, we get a far greater level of engagement and people, in, you know, coming to the organisation as members. So, and that was all about using good old-fashioned community organising principles to put people with lived experience at the front mm-hmm. and skilling them up about how to do use those kind of methodologies um, for their own work in other kinds of campaigns that they might want to do. I'd like to go back to that um, yep. because I think people with lived experience deserve that. If that's, you know, in our democracy, that's one of the tools of that people have to empower themselves is to have a big organised voice. Um, then, you know, as a, as a membership body that has lived experience and organisations, I'd really like to continue that because that's what got us the that's what got us the NDIS for mm. all its flaws. But mm-hmm. the Every Australian Counts campaign was what made that right, happen. Okay. So mm. that's what part of what we were 
I'm using as an example. And so how do people stay in touch with what you guys are up to? Where they can where can they find out? So they can find us on the socials and on our website, which is the it is www.wamh.org.au um, and uh, contact us through through that. Um, we have a Facebook page and all the usual things. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. We offer training too, so as well as our advocacy, we have a huge um, amount of training that we provide to the sector and to other organisations as well. Um, And we've also been delivering some um, lived experience speaker training things as well, so helping people tell their their story. So My wife's used that training firsthand because she (laughs) lectures in community services at TAFE Ah. and she's had people from WAM come out and talk to her students. Mm. Awesome, great. Yeah, Yeah. that's excellent. Great. All Excellent. Right. We'll put links to all that in our show notes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. But yeah, thanks very much for your time, Taryn. It's been a great conversation. You're welcome. And I managed not to cry, so that's <laughs> good. Hey. <laughs> and that was our conversation with Taryn Harvey. I can I can really empathise and and sympathise. Whichever the right word is, I'm not sure which one. With the the relief for the amount of hard work that she would have had to have put through for that, because mm. it was such a long period of time, um, and yeah, it would have just been exhausting. Yeah, and I think previous efforts with the previous government were fruitless as mm. well. Um, it was a government that was very big on law and order yeah. and tough on crime and that sort of thing, um, and so trying to uh, help people who were in a very disadvantaged position navigate the justice system and you know get a, a, a sort of fair outcome mm. wasn't top of their list of priorities. So no. um, yeah, you heard Taryn there give a um, acknowledgement of the current Attorney General. So that's John Quigley, who has yeah he's fought a, a few battles around justice and fairness and stuff over the years. If you look John Quigley up online, you'll see a, mm. a few interesting stories about him dealing with people who've been wronged by the justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was a uh, fairly high-profile high lawyer before he went into politics. Right. So, um, but yeah, really interesting chat with Taryn and you can hear the passion and you dedication, you know. Yeah. And you, you have to have that passion and dedication, I feel, for those things because yeah. I, I, I think a lot of people would get too frustrated and too tired um, to keep going with things like that. Yeah. Because um, it is it is hard and it is very, very hard to get change. Um, but this is an example of where it's been successful in, in yeah, progress in small yeah. steps. Yeah, and like I said in our conversation, it was – you know, it's we're lucky that there are people around like yeah. Taryn to, to carry the baton for mm-hmm. these important issues that um, maybe don't cross a lot of people's minds mm. until they're made acutely aware of them, you know? Yeah, it is really interesting with the prison system. Like a, um, I was talking to someone the other day uh, and they go up to uh, a lot of rural areas and, and kind of inland in WA and there's a, there's a prison out there, a Roburn. Oh, yeah, up in yeah. the Kimberley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it, there's even just simple things like the fact that they don't have air con. Yeah, and it's like, well and truly over 40 degrees a lot yeah, of the year. Yeah, and people die from that and yeah. it's just not even thought about. And that's like a simple thing. And the, what Taryn's been talking about is quite a complicated issue with um, yeah. you know fighting against 
um, power differentials and and speaking um, for people who mm. don't necessarily have a voice. Like that's a whole other complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people Crazy. in the system, in the adult system, are at a fair disadvantage to begin mm. with. But children, it's... yeah, juvenile prisoners is like <sighs> a whole different level of um, power differential. Yeah, if you start thinking about it too much, you get very sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least I do. <laughs> yeah. No. Probably it's... why I can't work in the field. I'll it's... just be sad all the time. <laughs> it's probably one of the biggest moral challenges we have it as a society is. in Australia currently is the way we treat our young yeah. people in the justice system. And one of the layers of that is the fact that they overwhelmingly are Indigenous. Yeah. And so you've got this kind of race element along mm-hmm. and cultural kind of unsafety, uh, unsafeness kind of element alongside the, the fact that they're young as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a real complex issue and, and a lot more work needs to be done. And I guess the starting point for that is having these conversations and giving people a platform to, you know, um, hopefully educate people a bit better yeah. about some of the things that are going on that they might not be aware of, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, anyway. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so anyway, we could go on for hours about this yeah, topic. Yeah. It's obviously one that's close to my heart. And yeah, no, that's one of your passions. <laughs> yeah, very work that I do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people can get in touch with us, Courtney. Yes, yes, you can talk to us if you feel so inclined. You can uh, email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com. You can uh, message us on Instagram at at, oh, at health means what? At health means yeah, what? Excellent. Yeah. Um, same as Twitter as exactly well. The same so handle. you can uh, you can chat to us on there. Yep. Um, and Facebook. Did I say that? Meaning of Health Podcast. Yeah, I think um, Meaning of Health there. Podcast will yes. take you to our yeah. Facebook page. Yeah. 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 So you can contact us through a number of ways. So please chat. We'd like to talk to whoever is listening. And um, if you've got any feedback or if you have guests that you would like to come on, please let us know. Yeah. Definitely. Anyway, well, hey. <laughs> that's another episode done. So we hope uh, everyone's enjoyed listening and we look forward to bringing you the next one. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.